Yo, check this out. This is Chuck D. And keep it locked. You are tuned into the library. The Lies of Buried. With Tim Inico. Right here, right now. Rapstation.com. Here comes. <laughs> Since the far off days when man first heard a scratchy noise on a cylindrical drum, accompanied by staccato human tones, it has been his aim to add breadth and depth, to give realism and spaciousness, and even where it applies, to convey actual movement. Intro, I start to go, my rhymes will flow slow Get up and dance, cause Kane said so If you were lounging around, it's time to get up Pardon my expression, but I'ma tear this shit up I'll appear right here, scan deer A mere musketeer that would dare to compare He's a Grammy Award winning rapper, a member of the Juice Group A hip-hop god, and one of the most influential rap artists ever He's Big Daddy Kane, and he joins me on the library with Tim Einenkel on RapStation.com Big Daddy Kane, thank you so much for joining me Glad to be here, man, glad to be here so let's start from the beginning, the, the way beginning. Uh, you grew up listening to music your parents loved. Your parents listened to artists such as Teddy Pendergrass, the Isley Brothers, Marvin Gaye, Al Green, and Johnny Teller. So I was always curious, what drew you to hip-hop music and culture? And did you ever actually try or attempt to become a soul singer? <laughs> Not really. I mean, like, my pops would go to work. I would, you know, sometimes put his clothes on and get in the mirror and pretend to be singing Marvin Gaye songs, but... I don't really have the pipes to be a singer, man. <laughs> uh, and then what also, what, what, so what, what What kind of initiative uh, drew you to, I guess, the hip-hop culture and rap music? Well, I mean, you know, it was the new thing in the streets, and, um, you know, everybody was pretty much taken to it like water, man. So it was something that I thought was new, innovative, and, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. Mm. So, I mean, you know, I just took to it. Cool. You said in a, I know you said in past interviews that uh, what you, what you feel that what caused artists uh, today artists have become lazy with their lyrics because they're not really they don't they don't really have the love for the music and they're basically kind of making music to sell albums. Um, so you obviously started your career at a time when no one really knew if you could make money off of rap music, right? Um, so did you have a backup plan at all? And how has your passion uh, for doing the music changed from when you first started? Well, um, my backup plan was to go to college for engineering. I was going to, you know, go to Adelphi College to take up engineering. But, um, you know, it, it was like, I honestly, you know, at that time, you know, I saw uh, artists like um, Grandmaster Flash or the Furious Five, you know, um, you know, flossing a lot of jewelry and stuff. You know, so, I mean, I, I thought there was money in it, but I did, that just wasn't my focus. You know, mm. my focus was just really to be, uh, you know, a dope MC. You famously wrote lyrics for artists such as Biz Marquis and Roxanne Chante. Uh, when you when you when you write for a different artist, how 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 important is it for you to know the artists? Uh, personally i mean do you do you feel that you need you're using them as a vehicle to express their what they would express or are you using them as a vehicle to kind of express what big daddy kane would express i think it's very important to know the artist like when you take biz for example the stuff i wrote for biz was in biz style Biz would come to me and say yo i need something like a zika 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 and, you know, he would, like, show me the pattern of the flow, and I could put it in his style. Now, with Shantae, I really wanted to write in her style. I wanted to really put it in that uh, Roxanne's Revenge type of style. 
just making it super lyrical, but the label wanted me to put it in my style, which I knew wasn't going to really be comfortable for her because now she would have to go a lot faster than she's accustomed to going. And I mean, you know, even though have a nice day and uh, gone girl did good for her, I just think that they could have been even better had they just been in her style where she was in a comfort zone doing what she do, you know, as opposed to trying to sound like me. Right. Is Was it harder for you to write for a female artist versus a male artist? No, not at all. Um, it wasn't hard. I mean, because, I mean, I, I mean, Shantae is, you know, she, she, she's family. I, I've, you know, known her since, you know, um, when I got down with, with, with them. And, um, you know, I mean, Shantae is one of those artists that don't really have no boundaries, mm. you know. It's, 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 it's not like I would have to say, okay, well, that's a little too vulgar for her or, well, that's a little too masculine for her. Shantae is known for having a raunchy mouth, so it's like I didn't really have to limit myself, you know, when writing for her. And that goes to what you were saying about how important it was for you to know, obviously, the person you're writing for, because you, know yeah. you know the limits or you, or you know that you could be unlimited. Um, in 1987, you debuted your, you know, your single, Raw, and you seem to have created, you know, you from all the talk and all the interviews, you obviously created this this track with a with a purpose. Um, so, for you, how many drafts did you write before you knew that the mission of this track was completed? And then, is this your favorite track in your career? My favorite track in my career would probably be "Set It Off." Oh, nice. But with Raw, with Raw, what really happened? It was like, um, you know, um, I had the song out with Biz, uh, just rhyming with Biz, and. Everybody thought it was a big song, so no one was hiring me for shows. So I was pretty much broke with a hot, you know, hot single out because I wasn't getting any shows, you know. So I kept begging the label, yo, let me just put something out by myself. When uh, when Tyron Williams finally agreed, um, I I wrote Raw, but I originally wrote it to um, a Marley Mall drum track. Like there was a drum track that Marley Mall had made, and I originally wrote it to that. But um, the day I was going to record it, like I, I was coming to the studio with the um, the Mama Feel Good um, horns for Marley to sample that so he could sample that to use for the chorus. But I was going to go over his drum track, but the day I was headed to the studio, I stopped by Downstairs Records, and a guy that worked at JC, he said, you know, yo, I got these new James Brown imports in. It's like him singing over just the drums, no other music. You need to hear him. Mm. And when he played uh, Bobby Bird, I'm coming, I was like, I'll take that right there. That's what I need. <laughs> so we got to the studio. I told Marley, now nah, forget that. Loop this up. You know, and I left and went to the store. When I came back, he had looped up the wrong part. Nah, I need the one with the offbeat snare. Like like two bars in, there's, the snare goes offbeat. Loop it up from there. Mm. And then he had to, because you know, that's when we were using two inch, so he had to resample that part and retrack it through the um uh for the two inch all over again and then you know that's how we did it so, so is that i mean is, is that a typical um i mean obviously the, the, the that exact story wouldn't be typical but for you is that um is that is that the best way for you to write or to create uh, an album or a track is to write the lyrics first and then kind of get the beat after it or is it or is it just it's every 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 track is a, a different no i mean you know it differs you know like um like i did a song called get into it and i wrote 
to the beat because the rhyme pattern was following the drum the drum pattern. So it was like, you know, that's something where, you know, you had to write to the beat, you know, to really make that work. So, um, you know, writing to the, the beat is good. As she said, with, with Roy, it was the type of thing where I just heard an amazing beat and thought that this would be much better than what we were about to use. And I just made the rhymes fit that beat. I want to go to another, obviously another track you, you wrote, uh, uh, Young, Gift and Black, off your second album, It's a Big Daddy Thing. Um, it seems to be partly an argument you're having with people who don't think rap is art or music. Um, so was, I wanted to ask you to kind of take us back to the time you wrote this track. What arguments were you hearing against rap music as an art form? And do you think those arguments have changed? Do you think people have come around to realize that rap is an art form or it's music? Yeah, <laughs> I think that I think that some people have come around to realizing that. However, I think it may be the wrong people. Yeah. What do you mean? I, I think that, you know, um, that a lot of people have come around to respect um, uh, hip-hop as an art form, respect it as a genre of music. But I don't think that it's the musicians that are doing that. I think that it's the labels and um, the media. And what they're doing with it is um, they're using it in a commercial way that kind of destroys the culture. Right. So they're saying that they could yeah. make, they could obviously, they're accepting it as an art form because they're kind of... Because they, yeah, they can make money off it. Yeah, because they can make money off it. Because they can make money off it. And if they couldn't make money off it, then they wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I feel like, you know, like, you know, um, media, um, radio, and record companies have found a way of making money off of this by commercializing it and um, making it equivalent to pop music. Right. That way it becomes a multi-million dollar, you know, thing, and you can make a whole lot of money off of it. But in the process of doing that, you know, you have so many artists that uh, become fly-by-night artists are here today, gone tomorrow. And they never left nothing. Like, they they, they never left no substantial song, nothing um, from their short-lived career to really be remembered by, you know. There's people that argue that in order for the culture or the music to have survived this long, it needed to be commercialized. Um, where do you stand on that argument? I mean, I think that that's um, a bunch of BS because, um, you know, it's like when rock and roll started to um, become commercialized, you still had um, the Rolling Stones and um, Al Smith and some you know, others going strong, still doing what they do, still being respected for what they do, you know? So, I mean, I'm not saying that hip hop shouldn't have a commercial side. It should, I'm not saying it shouldn't have commercial because I mean, throughout it's, um, you know, throughout his years of existence, man, you know, we've had a lot of commercial hits on hammer. Can't touch this ice ice baby. Um, wild thing from tone low. Um, 
parents don't understand from Will Smith. You know, I mean, there's always been commercial songs that have coexisted in what we do as a culture. And there's a place for it. You know, I don't sit and deny those songs as not being hip hop songs because of the simple fact that rap music actually has no music. It's always something that we've done for other people's music and we have rhymed over pop music. Right. So there's a place for those songs, you know. I mean, so it all can work together. It's just that when you start saying that this hip hop um, form of hip hop is the true hip hop, this is what we want. This is all we want to play. This is all we want to put out. That the other stuff is some other underground stuff for for just a few people that stuck in the past. When you start doing that, then you're destroying a whole culture. And not only that, you know, I think you're destroying a lot of artists' careers, you know, because you're looking for that fast dollar from an artist to sell um, a hot single. And after that single isn't hot no more, you move it on to the next artist, and that artist becomes forgotten. He never gets a chance to grow or prosper. Do you think, I mean, what, what, you're, what, you're, what you're talking about now, do you think um, that the changes you talked about right now, do you think that kind of coincided with, it seemed like that coincided with the release of your seventh album, uh, Veterans Day, that you, know, you talked about, you deem, and you kind of walked away from uh, because the industry was changing. Is this the change that, the change you just mentioned, is, it, is, it, is this the change that you were seeing in 1998? Um, I mean, I saw, I mean, I walked, when I walked away, it was because of the changes in the industry. It was because of, um, you know, the person I was dealing with on that Veterans Day album, I just didn't want to go to jail. So I just said, you know, F this, you know, I chill, I'm good. That was just something personal with me and the person I did that album with, um, but the person that was running that company, you know, I just saw that going a whole different direction. But I mean, uh, from the late 90s, I saw a lot of things in hip hop changing, you know, but um, I, I don't think nothing ever stays the same and I don't think anything should, Right. you know, I don't think that that's what, you know, music is meant for, you know. I mean, if 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 you're sitting there saying that, you know, the last um, dope MC that you heard was Jay-Z and Nas, then you're saying that hip-hop hasn't really elevated since the mid-90s. Mm. That's what you're saying, you know? I mean, so it's like music is supposed to change, you know? I mean, I thought that it was great for hip-hop when people started giving myself, KRS, Rakim Process, like, as being the greatest, because that showed the elevation from the Melly Mel, Grandmaster Cash, Kumo D era. When people started saying Nas, Biggie, and Jay-Z are the greatest, that showed the elevation from our from my era, you know what I'm saying? So it's like music is supposed to change, you know, um, supposed to take it to the next level. When it when it got to the point where uh, people were, you know, not really sampling anymore, you know, things like um, drum programming, using a lot of instrumentation, I thought that that was dope. But for one, it puts more money in the artist's pocket because you don't have to pay all that sampling costs. Right. You know, but, but and it's also elevating music. It's taking it to a higher level. So, I mean, you know, change is good. It's supposed to happen, you know. I just think that it's a lot better when it happens the right way for the right reasons. Right way, meaning that 
music gets to grow and expand, right reasons so that artists can be successful and have a future. When I, when I interviewed uh, Akumo D, he talked about his beef with LL Cool J and how it was falsely reported by media as the old rapper jealous of the new rapper. And he kind of said that the real beef was what Ella was representing at the time versus what like him and Public Enemy and KRS were kind of doing in terms of being more socially empowering in their rap music. Uh, for you, without getting into any, you know, any side of that beef, um, how are you able to, I mean, something that I think was really admirable about your career and currently and still is, is that you were able to balance being a rap, kind of a rap activist and the quote unquote, you know, ladies man of rap, right? So how were you able to balance both those sides? And then kind of what, what advice could you give to an MC that is struggling with that balance? Well, I mean, it's like, honestly, it's about being you and doing what you believe in, speaking on whatever it is that you believe in, you know, I mean, you know, the same person that made what's going on made let's get it on. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, if you believe in unity, you believe in, you know, brothers, you know, having something positive to say or, you know, some uh, uplifting message, then speak on it. You know, you believe in, you know, um, love and sex, speak on it, you know? I mean, one, you know, it doesn't make you a hypocrite to speak on both because you talk about what exists in the world. Mm. You know what I'm saying? People struggle in the world. People, it's hard for people to find jobs in the world. But at the same time, people have sex. So it's all part of life. Right. In your in your career, you've... Uh... You you hung out with a lot of people that influenced you growing up. You know, you you mentioned a Quincy Jones, Barry White, to name a couple. Um, which of these people, when you first met them, were you the the most starstruck from? And what was it Barry like? White. Oh wow, what was it like when you first met him? Uh, I, I was just standing there, like you know, like you know. Catching them, you know, you know, from my, from my peripheral view, you know, like just catching from the side, you know, so he wouldn't see me staring, but like just fascinated, like, yo, I am at a cookout at Quincy Jones' house with Barry White. Like, I'm in the same backyard as Barry White. Like, I cannot believe this, there, you know. And, and like, you know, then, like, you know, finally, you know, someone brought us over, introduced us, we talked and everything, and, um, and, you know, he was just cool. Then I was leaving the cookout, you know, and I got into my car and turned, the, you know, the ignition on. I was listening to um, um, his, um, like a, a Barry White cassette, you know. Yeah, that's how far back it was. <laughs> I was listening to a Barry White cassette. And, you know, he heard it. And, you know, he just pointed at me. Ha, ha, sure, you're right, Kane. <laughs> wow. And, um, you know, then um, I was like, yeah, man, I've always been a big fan. He, he was like, well, we need to do something. And like maybe like two weeks later, I got the call from um, Alonzo Brown, who was working at A and M at the time. When when you did a track with Barry White, I mean, how much I guess doing doing a track with one of your your one of, someone who influences you, how how much pressure do you put on yourself to kind of deliver? Um, it wasn't no pressure at all. Um, 
you know, I knew the perfect person to do it. Um, this guy, Andre Booth, who, um, you know, had already played on the To Be A Man joint uh, that I did with Blue Magic and um, The Day of Mine from the Long With The Kane album. Um, like, with those songs, it was he was the type of dude where you had to tell, okay, too much, that's a little too much for hip-hop. Because he would be trying to make it a full-blown 48-track R&B production. So, working with Barry White, here's my chance to say, Andre, do what the hell you want to do. Oh, wow, nice. You know, and he made it a full-blown R&B production, and it sounded great. And, um, you know, I had this concept of uh, well, I, what would be dope is, like, play, well, play off of words, like saying all of me wants all of you. Mm. You know, and um, when I told Barry the idea, he looked at his man, JP, and, and JP just dropped his head and started smiling and, like, you know, shaking his head like, wow. Because you know, we and Barry, we were already talking about how much we had in common and didn't know our birthdays was two days apart. Oh, wow. um, we both like, um, like, we both like um, eating Caesar salad for lunch, you know, that type of thing. It was right. like, you know, we talked about how much we had in common. So when I said this to him, he um, showed me that a song that he didn't put on an album, he had called <laughs> All of Me, Wants All of You. And that actually was the hook that you know we use. We use his old hook for the song. We've obviously talked about your, you know, you growing up and having this kind of passion and influence for um, being influenced by soul music. So I've always wondered, what what's the most influential soul music record or track for you? Two of the main tracks that I've probably listened to the most are. Lonely Room by New Birth and um, Nothing Sweeter Than Love by 100 Proof, Age Soul. What about them that kind of stands out for you? They're just like those types of, like just, to me it's like those are songs that really define soul where the beat is hard. It's like hard beats that you would want to rap to and the brothers just singing on these songs, man, like the passion in their voice, like, yeah, I like you don't let's say make the song may have had another writer, but the way they sing in it, it sounds like they wrote that song that morning. Oh wow. You know. I mean the passion that you hear in their voice in these songs and then the um the arrangement, you know, the way that the, the music is arranged, like the changes and you know, how it transcends and everything, it's just it's just crazy, man. Especially Lonely Room. Uh I have a few more questions about kind of your career and uh talk about what's the future for big daddy kane but uh i have two two questions uh that from stories i've heard from um from gary g Wiz of the bomb squad uh he told me that he heard that rhyming with biz was recorded through headphones uh so the question is is that true and if so why no. did that, why did it happen so, no we didn't record through no headphones it was a freestyle so therefore um there was no um there was no compression or no issues or nothing, you know, um, added, you know, to the vocals. Um, and we did, the mic wasn't sitting still with a pop screen. We was holding the mic in our hand because it was me, Biz, and these two girls, frickin' frack, passing the mic around, rhyming. It's just that um, 
the deal never went through with um frickin' frack with cold chilling, so um they kicked them off of the um track. That's why it ends so abruptly. Do I come off? Yep. Because afterwards I was passing the mic to Frick and you know, before it could get to that they just cut it. Gary G was of the bomb slot, bomb squad also remembers um a young guy who was at the time remembers you recording on uh, Nefrespect for the Juice soundtrack. And he remembers you did it in one take and you just broke out. Uh, can you tell us about this recording session? And did you know going in that you would just nail the track on one take? Um, well, I was hoping so. Cause what it was, was, um, Hank Shockley had done drove me up a goddamn wall about this song and by getting it done that night. And I was like, I was coming from LA. You understand me? So, I mean, yeah. I just, you know, caught like an 8 a.m. flight that morning, which means I probably got up around 5.30, you know. And, you know, uh, I caught an 8 a.m. flight and got in that evening. And I already knew that Hank went. I told Hank I'll call him when I get home and, you know, we'll work it out. But um, honestly, I was actually just going to go home and take my ass to sleep and just hit front <laughs> on Hank tomorrow. Right. But when I pull up at my crib, Hank is sitting in my yard. <laughs> so I saw there was no way around this. You know, he was determined to get this song done. So, I mean, I'm tired, dead tired, you know, just want to sleep so bad. But I'm like, you know, like, you know, forget it. Let's just get this over and done with. You know, I mean, because it was like I wanted to work with Hank. You know, I've always been a fan of the Bomb Squad. So I wanted to work with Hank Shockley so bad. But... Not under these circumstances, you know, I wanted to be where I'm refreshed and I got it together and I could really get the right mindset. But that night I really couldn't. Because I honestly, I think enough respect could have probably been, you know, done even better had I just got there, heard the beat and was like, okay, nah, let me go here. You oh, know, wow. but I mean, it was like, it was one of the situations where I, I had to get to a bed. <laughs> so I just did what I had to do and bounced. Uh, is this the only track? Uh, in your career that you've kind of banged out on one take or is I mean or obviously uh, you've you've probably gotten better sleep since then so you well um uh, just rhyming with Biz was um, you know one take because I mean we actually tried to do the vocals over because of that freaking frack thing so that it could end better mm -hmm. we tried to do the vocals over but it didn't sound as good so we just kept what we did um, but there were other songs there were a lot of other songs I did in one take you know is that something that you've uh, you've kind of strived for in your career, or is this just just kind of has come naturally to you to be able to do things in one take? I don't think that um, doing something in one take is important. I think what's more important is getting getting it right. Mm, okay. If it takes you a hundred takes to get that perfect one, then do a hundred takes. I would rather be sitting there saying, "Yeah, it took me a hundred takes, but we got those vocals right." You know what I'm saying? Right. Rather than sitting there listening to some idiot brag about, yeah, man, you know, and I I did that in one tape, and it sounds trash. And I'm like, you know, like, okay, so that's why it sounds like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, years ago, you did a track uh, it's, uh, with uh, Joel Ortiz, uh, the Brooklyn Remix track. Um, Ortiz, obviously, is a straight lyricist who really seems to bring heart to all his rhymes. Um is there anyone you would compare him to from the true the true school MCs? Um, I mean, um, Ortiz to me, 
I would probably um, call, I would probably say that he's from the Coogee Rap uh, family tree. I would say that it was, you know, from G-Rap to Big Pun to Joel Ortiz. I would say that that's the family, family tree right there. I think he learned from Pun and Pun learned from G-Rap. And in my opinion. Do you think there's a, would you want, would you, would you guys, have you guys ever talked about doing, uh, I don't know, something, some, something more together? Yeah, 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 yeah. We've actually been dis- uh, discussing doing something and um, hopefully we'll get to do it in the very, very near future. Cool. Uh, the 25th anniversary of It's a Bag, Big Daddy thing and the 20th anniversary of Daddy's Home is, they're, they're both coming up. They're actually right around the corner. Um, what are your thoughts looking back at these two albums? Anything you would want to have done differently? No, nah, I mean, it's big. It's a big daddy thing. It's, you know, my favorite album of my collection. So, yeah, I take, you know, you know, I call them serious pride in, in that project. Uh, that's like, that's my favorite one. Um, Daddy's Home? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would have probably, I, 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 I would keep all the rhymes that I said on that album. I would have just flowed different. Uh, we was having this conversation. Somebody was having this conversation a few nights ago uh, about Daddy's home because, um, you know, with Taste of Chocolate and um, Prince of Darkness, these are albums that I did really just rushing, trying to hurry up and get out of this Warner Brothers deal because I was unhappy with the label. But after Prince of Darkness, um, it was like, um, you know, a lot of people saying like, yo, people saying you fell off, yo, people saying your stuff is whack now, man. So when I did Looks Like a Job for, I went in the studio trying to really make a good album and I got all the right producers, large professor, track masters, easy mobi, but it still didn't take off, you know, and I mean I couldn't understand. I'm like, you know, lyrically I'm I'm like I'm killing this lyrically and you know, these brothers blessed me with some amazing production, you know. And it wasn't really till Daddy's Home when I was really listening to my stuff, comparing it to like um, Wu Tang and um, Red Man and certain other artists. I'm realizing, you know what? My tone is so 80s. I'm ahead of the beat the way we you know while these dudes is more like you know it's like it's the flow is a lot slower i'm like that's i think this is what i'm doing wrong i'm flowing wrong like i sound like one of the old dudes and that's when i started like you know hanging with a lot of you know um cats like the cyphers with my boys over um on prospect um in brownsville getting a cypher with them cyphers with them um, cats I knew out of Brie Voice Projects for the Nation, you know, getting a cipher with the younger generations, spitting with them, you know, and I adjusted my flow differently. And I think it shows on um, Veterans Day. You listen to Veterans Day, my flow is a whole lot more tighter and more synced with what was going on, what was going on that era. What? You know, so that was like, you know, like with looks like a job for in Daddy's Home, those takes I made, my flow wasn't right. So if I could change anything on Daddy's home, it would be my flow. When 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 you when you when you when you when you do something where you have to change your flow, does that cause you to write differently? Uh, I, I mean, I mean, do that's what I'm asking is when you know you're yeah. changing your flow, do are different lyrics bound to come out 
from if you have um, well, it causes me to write differently because now for me to slow my flow down I mean I'm gonna have to use less words mm. right you know because I'm used to putting a whole bunch of words in one line right you know what I'm saying we're like a you know you know we're like a, a line where it's like you know I give a speech like a reverend rap star separate you know I would have to you know speech like reverend Rapper separate, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I would have to like take words out to slow it down. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But it was not a problem, you know. I mean, it wasn't nothing uncomfortable. It was just that I just couldn't figure out what the hell I'm doing wrong because I'm sitting there looking at the lyrics, saying it. And I'm like, man, this shit is fire, man. What are they talking about? Right. Exactly. But you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying. But then, um, you know, when I'm when I finally took a chance to like listen to it compared to somebody else, I'm like. Man, what I said is sound a whole lot better than what he just said. But you know what? He said it so slick. So we're like you you in the groove, you know? So so is that I mean that seems interesting cuz has that always been the case where I guess flow outperforms lyrics in hip hop? Mm, it can be in a lot of cases for the simple fact that um you know it's nothing. It's like nothing like a song that you can sing along to, right? Right. You know, I mean, you take songs like Lottie Dottie or Top Billing, big hits that's not super lyrical. Just you can just sing it word for word, right? Like Rick, 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 or Milk D. They don't have to say nothing. They can you just point the mic to the crowd. The crowd can sing the whole song word for word from top to bottom, right? In 2013, when you helped form the group uh, Last Supper, um, how did you know it was time for you to kind of start creating new music after being so disappointed by the music industry? Well, I mean, that ain't my album. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, wanted, I wanted to do something, and um, I've always wanted to create a soul project, you know, and, um, you know, that's, that's the band's album. It's not my album. So it's not like as if like Kane came out of retirement and made another album. That's not my album. That's the band's album. I'm just on it. And I mean that's something I've been doing. I mean, um I did um I did the joint with Game, um I did a song called This Is How We Do with Snoop, um, that huge joint next up. You know, I'm the Joel Ortiz joint you just mentioned, bro. I mean, I've been featured on other artists, you know, songs, you know. I don't have a problem with doing that. You know, you call me about, you know, doing a verse. I'm there. Let's do it. But sitting down trying to create some 10, 12, 15 cane tracks, I don't many times so. Mm. What's the future for uh, Big Daddy Kane? Hopefully Big Daddy Kane will be sitting behind a desk doing something productive um, in the music industry <laughs> or film industry where, you know, I don't have to be, you know, running around, you know, jumping up and down on stages and stuff as much, you know. But that's the future. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love performing. That's pretty much the only thing in hip-hop that I still have a serious, strong passion for. I love performing, you know. And, I mean, I love, you know, getting together with young artists that, that you know, that that's, that's flames, you know, and doing, you know, music with them, you know. Um, I, matter of fact, I just did something on Saigon's new album. Oh, you wow. know, um, I, yeah. I love doing stuff like that, you know. 
hip-hop god, legend, Big Daddy Kane. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me in the library with Tim Einenkel on rapstation.com. You got it, my brother. And um, the pleasure is all mine, and much respect to you guys. Keep up the good work. And when that individual comes, I make no apologies for what I'm about to Real, you're gonna stand still to obey your case, so let the man build words of rapture that you have to capture. And I just slapped you with a handful of literature. This dope, deaf, fresh, hype, choice, smooth, and poor. Rappers, I replace, rub out, and erase. Competition, you must be on free base. Smoking or joking, bound to be broken. Now get your damn hands off the mic that I'm choking. Cause I got a strangle hold. You're still cold on parole for the road you stole. Rhymes that you yell out, but you did sell out. Crossed over, lost over here, and I get the hell out. I'm not a pop star, rock and roller. I'm a rebel, blessed, able to hold a mic like a hammer and drop grammar, treat a rap.